Well, as much as we took a break for uh, Hanukkah, <coughs> but we have managed to, uh, Baruch Hashem, catch the tail end of Hanukkah today. Uh, is the eighth day, was the eighth day. It's known as Zos Hanukkah. That's actually uh, an innovation of the Hasidim um, after the term from the laning uh, Zos Hanukkah. But even if it's not called Zos Hanukkah, it's still called Hanukkah, uh, the eighth day. And uh, I think it, it is in place actually to, tr- to transition out, so to speak, from Hanukkah back to the weekly Parsha by noting something which is of, of yearly relevance. And that is that the Parshas of Yosef always coincide with the Chag of Hanukkah. It will always be Parshas Miket, sometimes a little earlier in Vayeshev, sometimes a little later into Vayigash. But one way or another, the Parsha timing of Hanukkah will always coincide with, with that of Yosef. And the question is, what are we to make of this? This, this is discussed by the great Hasidic master, the Bnei Soschar, Reb Tzvi Melech Shapira of Dinov. And <coughs> it's worthwhile prefacing that there's something distinctive, one could say, about Hanukkah. All of the other Chagim that we have about uh, events in our history Ultimately, the event was shared by the entire Jewish people. If we take as a simple example, Avadim uh, Hayinu, Pesach, we were all Avadim, and then, uh, then we came out. Shavuos, we all received the Torah. Sukkot, we all uh, dwelled in Sukkot. And also Purim. As much as we could identify one or two people, let's call them the heroes of the Purim story, the leaders of the Purim story, but in the end, everyone came into line uh, and it became the experience and the story and the success of the Jewish people as a whole. Not so with Hanukkah. Uh, as difficult as it is to, to consider, Hanukkah was not the experience and the, the miracle of Hanukkah and the war and the struggle and the revolt and the idealism were not the lot of the entire Jewish people. There were many, I don't know if we would say most, but many, many among the Jewish people, large swaths uh, among the people, (coughs) who did not feel um, that what the uh, Greeks were doing was so objectionable. And if there's anything they objected to, it was the Hashmanaim going to war and, and causing a stir. They were quite happy, unfortunately, tragically, acclimatizing and adopting many of the Greek uh, practices uh, more and more. And uh, they, they had no part and, in fact, were opposed to any type of uh, resistance. And that means that more than any other festival, Hanukkah is, is a festival of individuals. It is not of the entire Jewish people. It's about those who precipitated the call, Mila Shemelai, those who rallied to, to Matisio's call, uh, all of those heroic individuals. This brings us to the story of Yosef. <clears throat> Yosef, says the Bnei Soschar, he is really, one could say, the pre, pre-enactment of the Hanukkah story. Because he's one individual, and he is sold out into an alien culture, a foreign culture. <coughs> and we know that Yosef, among the, the, the tribes, of course, it's impossible for us to fathom fully and meaningfully uh, encompass the, the level of the, the, the madrig of the, of the Shvatim. But among them, or within them, we know that Yosef stands out as a Torah personality, the Pasuk, in the beginning of Parshas Vayeshev, it's Bereshus, Perik, Lamed, Zion, Pasuk Gimel, refers to Yosef as Ben Zikunim. He is the Ben Zikunim of Yaakov. Now, of course, the simple understanding of Ben Zikunim is that he was born in Yaakov's old age, which is 
very interesting for a couple of reasons. Firstly, all of the tribes were really, if, if Jacob is old when Yosef is born, he's not young when the others were born. I mean, he's, he's in his 80s already. <coughs> there, there's, Reuven, the oldest, is not much more than six or seven years older than, uh, than Yosef. And then Binyamin comes even later. So the, there's what to discuss if we explain that Benzikunim means of all the sons, Yaakov was old when he had Yosef. But it's for this reason, not, not only for this reason, but Rashi also cites the translation of Unculus. Unculus, interestingly, transla- <coughs> translates the term Benzikunim as Bar Hakim. Bar Hakim. Yosef was the wise son. Zikunim, we know as Zokin, sometimes refers to someone who is a, a, a possessed of wisdom, of Torah wisdom. Ben Zikunim is more a characterization of Yosef. And Rashi elaborates all of the learning that uh, Yaakov ha- had uh, absorbed in the yeshiva of Shem Ever, he taught to, or in the yeshivos of Shem Ever, more correctly, there were two yeshivas, but he he uh, transmitted to Yosef, <coughs> which when we think about it is actually astounding because as far from what we know, Yaakov spent uh, numerous decades in the yeshivas of Shem Ve'ever. From the age of 15, he's referred to as Yosef Ahalim, which Rashi explains is, is he learns in the yeshivas of Shem Ve'ever. And he spent another 14 years on his way out to, 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 to Lavan's house. That's a good, that's a good number of years. Yosef was sold to Mitzrayim at the age of 17. And Rashi tells us that everything that Yaakov learned from Shem and Aver, he transmitted to Yosef. That means by the age of 17, Yosef had, had learned everything that, it, that Yaakov had learned over all those many, many years. So he is certainly, <coughs> he stands out as the Torah personality. And Uncle says, Bar Hakim, the sale of Yosef, to Mitzrayim, therefore, represents the sale of Torah into a foreign culture, a foreign ideology. And Yosef's job, in a sense, is to maintain firm in his ideas, ideals, and idealism uh, as far as Torah is concerned. And this is is something that we find that he does. Um, In the end of Parshas Vayeshev, in Potiphar's house, when the Torah says that Hashem was with Yosef, so Rashi interestingly explains, we might have thought Hashem was with Yosef in the sense that Hashem helped him, what we would call Siata Dishmaya. But Rashi actually says that, explains that when it says Hashem was with him, it means Shem Shamayim Shago Befiv. Hashem's name was constantly with Yosef. He was constantly saying Baruch Hashem and Hamirz Hashem, which although we maybe take that for granted, it's par for the course uh, in certain circles. But we should appreciate it was hardly de rigueur uh, in, in Mitzrayim. I mean, no one expected him to say that in Mitzrayim. He probably did not ingratiate himself with anyone in Egypt by saying Emirz Hashem and Baruch Hashem. <coughs> but that's Yosef's way of maintaining, on the, even the most basic level, his sense of connectivity with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, regardless of where he is, who is surrounding him, and who he's talking to. And this, of course, allows him to maintain that connection with Hashem. As if to say, by keeping Hashem's name in his dictionary, he allowed it to become part of his diary. And this is now Yosef's triumph. It's interesting, as we know, the, there is a vessel that really embodies the, the idea of Torah and the centrality of Torah, and that, of course, is the menorah. The menorah becomes the uh, Ar menorah, Ner Mitzvah, the Torah Or. The menorah in the Beis HaMikdash, in the Mishkan, had seven branches. And the word for branches in the Torah is Kanim, Keneha menorah, Sheva Kanim. The, the, the menorah had seven branches. If you look back in the beginning of Parshas Vayeshev, when Yosef is described by the Pasuk as Ben Zikunim, we'll note something interesting. The word Zikunim is written without a Vav. It's written what would seem to be Chaser. The word should be spelt in full Zayn Kuf Vav. 
Vav Nun Yud Mem. <coughs> but it's written, it's written without the Vav. What does this tell us? Says the Rokeach, Rabbi Elazar Rokeach, one of the great uh, Ashkenazi Rishonim. Zikunim written without a Vav is a contraction of Zion Kanim, seven branches. Because that's the remez that Yosef in his, uh, his uh, deportment and behavior and values and so on and so forth is a personal embodiment of what will then later find expression in the Zion Kanim of the menorah. So I think these are uh, certainly sentiments well worth reflecting on as we take leave of Hanukkah and, and find our way back into uh, the weekly Parsha to appreciate uh, the, the coincidence of the reading of the Parshas of Yosef always uh, together with Hanukkah because he begins me, and, and represents what will ultimately become the story of Hanukkah in his own personal experiences. See, I'm having a bit of uh, visual trouble here, just one moment. Okay, let's see if that works. Okay, so having discussed um, Hanukkah and Yosef, let us come to Parshas Vayigash. And I will say, before we get into the, the um, bigger discussions of the beginning of the Parsha, I was very much uh, taken by a comment which uh, I saw in the name of the Avnei Nezer, the Sokotchev Rebbe, Rabbi Avram of Sokotchev. <coughs> As we know, the beginning of Parshas Vayigash, it's the confrontation between Yehuda and Yosef. And we, and we take it for granted because, I wouldn't say unfortunately, but we know the background. In other words, we know that it's really Yosef. But Yehuda doesn't know that it's Yosef. And, and what that means is, when, when you, the more you think about it, the more Yehuda seems to be uh, taking on the impossible. I mean, literally approaching this ruler who's shown himself to be capable of anything and asking him for, uh, pleading with him and uh, asking with him uh, to, 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 to release Benjamin, to take him in his stead, it literally seems to be um, impossible, an impossible request. What makes Yehuda think that this request will be effective? that it will have any uh, positive outcome or whatsoever. Says the Avni Nezer, the answer is very simple. If you want to know what possesses Yehuda to take on the impossible, the answer is because he has no choice. Because he has accepted the impossible. What do we mean by that? <coughs> As we know, and Yehuda himself says, when uh, he wants to persuade Yaakov to let Binyamin go down, to, uh, w- with the brothers, he says, I will take Anuchi Ervenu, I will guarantee him, I will take responsibility for him. If I do not bring him back, I will be in a state of sin, the Chatasi La'avi Kol Hayamim, which if you look in Rashi from Chazal means even Olam Haba, meaning he has undertaken to, to bring Binyamin back, come what may. Now, when you think about it, Yehuda has no idea what might stand in his way. It could be that forces beyond his control will, will, will keep Binyamin. I mean, that's what Yaakov is worried about. Not that Binyamin will wander off and get lost. Something beyond anyone's control. But if Yehuda takes responsibility, he's saying, even if that happens, even if it's beyond my control, I still accept responsibility. <coughs> and that being the case, Yehuda simply has nothing to lose. There's no point in him saying, uh, well, once this Egyptian leader has been Yomin, there's nothing I can do about it. Because you accepted those consequences, even if there's nothing you can do about it. So there's no stopping him. And impossible, the fact that the outcome is impossible, doesn't, doesn't make a difference for Yehuda, because he's accepted the impossible. But what's the very interesting thing? Is that... Had Yehuda accepted reasonable terms, as if to say, if, it, if it's within my capacity, I accept responsibility to, to bring Binyamin back, <coughs> it's likely that he would not have approached Yosef, because that n- does not naturally fall within the purview of within, within 
my capability. So had Yehuda accepted the possible, he would have rated this as impossible. But because he's accepted the impossible, he had no choice but to try it. And he discovered that this was possible. Because in the end, it worked. In other words, in defying the impossible, Yehuda came to redefine what is possible. Because there was nothing that could stop him. And, and of course, it, it's, it's such a, a fascinating idea. I think it also sums up a lot of uh, Hasidic idealism. Uh, what, is, what is that all about, if not taking on the impossible and then finding out what, uh, what actually is possible? Uh, one pushes the boundaries in that way to perhaps um, domains that one may never have considered possible otherwise. So this is the very interesting opening comment of the of the Avnezer of Sokachev. But let us get down to business. <coughs> Yehuda makes his plea to Yosef, and at a certain point, Yosef reveals uh, it's reached its reach breaking point. It's reached the point where Yosef now reveals his identity to the brothers. And the question that everyone wants to know is, why now? What happened? What, what, is, what has transpired? What has been achieved? What has occurred that now makes Yosef feel that the time is right to reveal his identity to the brothers? We, we do mention, in, by way of preface, that there seems to be a machlokas, even among Rishonim, as to whether Yosef was considering going further, but he just couldn't take it anymore. And he's, maybe his plan was to, to keep it going. From Rashi, it appears that's not the case. Although the Pasuk says, which sounds like Yosef couldn't uh, control himself, which implies that if he could have controlled himself, he would have kept going. But Rashi does not translate the Pasuk that way for the simple reason, as we've said in the past, that the Pasuk doesn't just say, the Pasuk in question is, and I think it's a good example of a situation where we assume we know what the Pasuk is saying because we ignore half of what it's saying. And when we would say this in our own words, we say this is the point where Yosef could control himself no longer. But the Pasuk doesn't say that, or more correctly, it says more than that. Which, and we have no license to, to, to cut away those words. The full phrase is, V'lo Yosef l'chol hanitzavim alav. He was not able to misapek, whatever that means, for all of those who were standing by him. We just lop off those words, and we proceed to tell the story as we assume the Torah is saying it. But that's why Rashi explains that it means that Yosef could not bear the brothers being ashamed in the presence of all those who were with him, his entourage, so he told them all to leave. In other words, according to Rashi, the issue here is not one of timing, that Yosef could not control himself and conceal his identity any longer. That's not the point at all. Rather, having decided that the time is now, he was not, he was not prepared for others to be. It, right? the, the, the business of him revealing his identity to the brothers is no one else's business, and he told them all to leave. But the time is now. And the question is, why is the time now? I mean, what, what has happened? Does, why is this the, the, the time for, for all to be revealed? And the truth is that if we pursue this question, we can actually trace it upwards because it really just will lead us to a more basic question. And that is, here we are asking, why wait till this late? The more prior question is, why wait at all? In other words, as soon as he sees the brothers, the brothers are here, he's Yosef. In the middle of Parshas Mikates, uh, why go why at all go through any of this whole, uh, he's accusing them and they're spies and etc. and so forth. Just, just, say, just say that he's Yosef straight away. And this second question itself leads us to a third question, more basic still. And that is... Why did Yosef even wait for the brothers to come down before he tells them that he's Yosef? Why does he not, as soon as he's able, <coughs> establish contact with home and say, it's Yosef, alive and well, and, and, and here I am? So, of course, 
as long as he's in Potiphar's house and if he's a slave and if he's in prison, okay, he doesn't have the uh, capacity to do that. He doesn't have the wherewithal, the ability to establish contact with his family. But things, things to turn around. And from the time that he becomes a second in command, presumably he does have the capacity to send a message, and he never did. And, and what are we to make of all of that? So, so if we can summarize, because it's really, in a sense, a question within a question within a question. The, the, the most prior question is, why did he didn't make contact as soon as he could? Secondly, as when the brothers are there, at least say something then. And finally, what is it about this uh, late stage uh, when everything's happened with Binyamin, etc., that it's considered to be the right time. Why go through the, the accusing them of spies and, and bringing everything to happen in the way that it does? So two classic approaches in the Mepharshim, quite similar to each other, one could say, is that Yosef felt Im- impelled to, to act in this way, <coughs> either because... He felt that that it was incumbent upon him to bring about the realization and fulfillment of his dreams. And the Pasuk does say, just before he accuses them of being spies, it says he remembered his dreams, which would seem to lend a credence to the idea that remembering the dreams led him to uh, say you're spies, etc. Perhaps in order to bring about their fulfillment, they'll bow down to him, etc. In a slightly different vein, or somewhat different vein, uh, others say that Yosef wanted to bring about the, the rectification of the problem that had led to uh, his sale. In other words, here he was sold down to uh, Mitzrayim. That's, a con- that's a, a, an element of discord among uh, the, the tribes of Israel. And, and he was looking to, to, to rectify that by having the brothers put themselves out for, for one of their number to show unity instead of disunity. So these are, again, they're quite different from each other, but what they both have in common is Yosef takes it upon himself, uh, all of these measures in order to bring about this outcome, either A, the fulfillment of his dreams, or B, the rectification of the sin as far as for, for on the, from the brother's side uh, when they when they sold him. But other Mepharshim have issues with both of these approaches. And the issue very simply is, and it becomes a, a really a, a question of, of axiomatic principle, who's to say that it's his uh, job to do either of these things? Who's to say that just because he's had a dream that the brothers will bow down, that he needs to do whatever it takes in order for the brothers to bow down? Maybe he doesn't need to do anything. Maybe he's being told that it will happen, and it will happen regardless of what he does. So how do we know that together with the dream is the mandate for Yosef to bring about their fulfillment? In the words of the Akedas Yitzchak, the one who gave you the dreams will give you the, will give you the uh, fulfillment of the dreams. It's not something that you need to do. And by the same token, who is to say that, it, that it's up to Yosef? It's Yosef's responsibility or his jurisdiction to, to, to rectify the sin that the brothers had done. Maybe that's their own responsibility, uh, especially when we consider what it entails. It entails uh, a lot of... Uh, Difficulty for Yaakov. Yaakov doesn't know where Yosef is all, the, all these years. It's a lot of difficulty with the brothers, right? They're in a state of trauma. They're accused of being spies. It's, I mean, there's, there's a great deal of aggravation <coughs> and upset that comes with the accusation of them being spies. So one really needs to be firm in one's belief that one needs to do this in order to justify uh, a, a, lot of, uh, a lot of difficulty, a lot of sorrows really, for the brothers and for Yaakov. And that is why there is a school of thought among Mepharshim which I'd like to develop. It's found more in later, uh, Svarim Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky uh, takes this line, as does Rebleib Minsberg, the Ben Melech, who, who we, we like to quote whenever we can. And to understand why it is that Yosef 
chose to set things up the way that he did before saying that he's Yosef, we do need to go back to why he was sold in the first place. And the question now is on the brothers. I mean, they have to have some type of rationale. It's a very drastic move. And by the way, selling him was considered the more lenient option because plan A was to kill him. I mean, and they say this explicitly in the Torah, the Torah cites them. They must have had what they considered to be just cause. <coughs> and what's that all about? So Mepharshim explained, Rishonim and Achronim. Again, the, the roots are in the Rokeach, Rabbi Elazar Rokeach. And the Malbim develops this idea, as do many in between, the Shalah Kodesh as well. That the brothers saw Yosef as being a, an, a real and immediate threat to their inclusion in the continuity of Yaakov's family. And the background to this is as follows. <coughs> the truth is that what we would call the pre-Jewish people, that is to say, beginning with Avram and Yitzhak, etc., as we know, Avram had more than one child. Avram had a number of children, but they did not all remain in the fold. Only Yitzhak, which tells us that in this early generation, there is, there's no guarantee just because you're, you're a son of Avram that you immediately have uh, what we would call protectia, or, or that there's no guarantee that you will stay, stay as part of the future of the Jewish people. And the same is true for Yitzhak himself. Yitzhak has two sons, Yaakov and Esav, and Yaakov stays in, and Esav doesn't. <clears throat> and this basically establishes what seems to be a a pattern whereby only one of the sons emerges. Now we know, in the, with the benefit of hindsight and, and, and all of that, that this was, let's call it a refining process, whereby for the first two generations, in a sense, you're looking to get the refined product first of Yitzhak and then of Yaakov. But once Yaakov comes on the scene, Mitaso Shlema, all of his sons are, are, are in the fold. We know that looking back, but it was not known at the time. And all of this casts Yosef's actions, and also Yaakov's actions, one has to say it carefully, but uh, Chazal speak about it, in a very different light, because Yaakov is favoring Yosef, and he makes him the Kasonas Pasim. Yosef himself is spread, spreading bad reports. This is all in the Pasuk. This is all black and white in, in the Chumash. Uh, spelling bad reports against the brothers and the brothers basically the more they look at this the more they see that Yosef is looking to do to he's looking to turn them into the next Yishmael's and Asaphs to get them blacklisted to get them rejected <coughs> that only Yosef will will endure that's a Rodef that's a person who is threatening their their uh, ongoing spiritual existence as part of the family of Jacob, and so dire did they cons- did they consider that they considered their spiritual ejection to be as significant, if not more so, than than in physically trying to to kill them. And they invoked the concept Habala Hashkembahargo. He's looking to get rid of them. They they're taking ev- defensive action. They're defending themselves, and to get rid of him. And moreover, this now gives us the background to what we could call his commuted sentence of being sold to Mitzrayim as a slave. I mean, how, how does that become a substitute? Because even the brothers know that if the reason why they feel even strongly enough so as to kill him in order to remove the threat. But as we know, when it comes to Rodef, if someone is pursuing you to kill you, you're in, you have license to kill them. But the goal is not to kill them, it's to neutralize the threat. If you could neutralize the threat in another way, if you could wound them or otherwise incapacitate them or set to stun, so then you have to do that. And, and therefore, what's suggested to the brothers, as far as they're concerned, nothing short of killing him will silence him. But that's not so, because Yehuda says, sell him down to Egypt. All things being equal, no one will ever be able to, to pose a threat from a state of slavery in Egypt. And that way it was, that's why it was considered to be an acceptable substitute for, for, for killing him, because it will effectively neutralize the threat. And that's what they did. 
All of this gives us a completely new perspective on how Yosef sees himself vis-a-vis -vis his family in Egypt, meaning he knows that the only reason why he's not dead is because as being in Egypt, he is not a threat to the brothers. <coughs> Which means that unless something drastically changes, unless there is a categorical reversal of, of uh, position on the part of the brothers, the only thing keeping Yosef alive in Egypt is his silence and his lack of communication with his family. Because it's clear to him, the only reason why they didn't kill him is because, because they, being sold to Mitzrayim, he, he will be out of the picture. If he looks to put himself back into the picture, there's every reason to suspect the brothers will come down, find him and finish the job that they would have done uh, in the first place had they not decided to sell him. In other words, it's nothing short of pikuach nefesh, as far as Yosef is concerned. And that is why, as long as it's impossible to send a message, it's impossible. But even when it's possible, and Yosef is under no such disillusion that uh, just because he's the second in command of Egypt, that will afford him any protection against his brothers. He, know what the, he knows what the brothers are capable of. And therefore, he is at risk until something drastically changes. And all of Yosef's efforts now are aimed at bringing those changes about. And, and this takes place over a number of stages. And let's follow them carefully because we'll see a process <coughs> that's being set in place by Yosef. The goal is that when he finally says, I'm Yosef, they won't kill him. That's the goal. And how does it, how does it begin? Well... The first thing that happens is when he sees them, stage one is he accuses them of being spies. Why is that so important? What's the role of that accusation? What Yosef wants to begin to get the brothers to realize is that it's possible to accuse someone of something and for it not to be true. It's possible to suspect someone of something, but it isn't so. If they themselves are on the receiving end of a wrongful accusation and, there was, and, and they're asking themselves, how can he say that about us? How can he think that about us? They will then begin to identify with the notion that someone might accuse you or suspect you of something, even though it's not true. And this will begin to sow seeds of uh, the idea within them <coughs> that could it be that they, they themselves have done something. As they, as they resonate with the accused, with the wrongly accused, perhaps they, it may shake the foundations of the idea that they themselves were not, were not wrongly accusers, wrongful accusers. Now, interestingly, we don't see the brothers fall to pieces just yet. In other words, they defend themselves, and but something very interesting happens. It's so interesting, we need to see it inside to be sure that we read the psukim carefully to catch. Uh, it, it, it's another one of these, we could call them mini episodes, that we could very easily retell the story and miss it out and be sure that we've said everything. But it's these junctures that are so, uh, that they really are turning points. If we look back to Perik Membe's Pasuk Tet Zion, and we'll read the four or five psukim, but again, Perik Membe's Pasuk Tet Zion. <coughs> so it's back in Parshas Mikates. This is our partial uh, Tashlumin for uh, the Mikates the year that we didn't have. But as we'll see, it will lead us back to Vayigash uh, with, with much greater clarity. So again, Perik Membe's. Pasuk Tet Zion. So the first thing, if we have the, the Pesukim in front of us, Yosef says, you're spies. You say you have a brother. I don't believe you. Tet Zion. Send one of your number home and bring the brother that you claim to have. You will all be incarcerated in the meanwhile. And then we will see if, if you're telling the truth. Whether the truth is really with you. So the original plan, as stated in Pasuk Tet Zayin of Perak Membez, is they're all to be kept captive. One of them can go, but they're all, all the all the others are, are uh, held hostage. And 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 Pasuk Yud Zayin Sofa Sama Mishmar Shloshes Yomim, and he actually it begins by incarcerating all of them for three days. 
then on Pasuk Yudches, after these three days, do the following. I'm a God-fearing person. Interestingly, here is Chamishi. Whoever put Chamishi there, I think, had stronger nerves than I do. Because it's a Mishaberich later that we get to find out what exactly the, the, the plan is. Okay? Well, maybe it's meant to help us uh, sympathize a little bit with the, with the plot of the, of, the, of the brothers. Everyone's in suspense. But <coughs> what is the revised plan? If what you're saying is really, if you're honest people, if you're truthful people, one of you shall stay, and the rest of you go home and bring food to your home. Just be sure, bring the younger son, uh, and, and then that will verify your words. So, <coughs> what's interesting is, Yosef, firstly, there's been a reversal of, of his plan for them, because originally he said, You'll all stay here, one of you will go home. But now it's changed. To what? One of you will stay here, the rest of you will go home. And Yosef prefaces the change of plan with the words, Es Elokim Aniyare. I'm a God-fearing person. What does he mean by that? What he means is, and here's Yosef saying, in a sense, the unthinkable to the brothers. What is he saying? You know, I'm changing my plan. Why? Because I'm a God-fearing person. And as such, I'm considering that maybe my initial judgment was too harsh. Initially, I said, all of you stay here. Only one can go home. But you know what? I'm a God-fearing person. I'm prepared to consider that that was, that was overly uh, harsh with you. I've changed my mind. I'd like, to, I'd like to do something a bit more lenient. One of you has to stay here, but the rest of you can go home. <coughs> this is unheard of. Here is Yosef. I mean, he, he, they don't know he's Yosef. He's this Egyptian ruler. Since when does an Egyptian ruler change his mind? And for whom? For the benefit of, the, of these suspected spies? Maybe, maybe I was a little too harsh for you. What is Yosef looking to do? He's looking to say, not only am I accusing you of being spies, and the brothers immediately know that's not true, but Yosef says, you know what, I made an accusation, maybe it was in haste. Maybe I was wrong. Maybe I should reconsider. What a thing for the brothers to hear. And what is the goal? That the brothers themselves might begin to say, well, if this Egyptian viceroy is a God-fearing person, and he's prepared to admit that maybe he made a mistake. Could it be that we made a mistake? And you know what's fascinating? That is exactly what they proceed to say in the next Pasuk. Pasuk Kaf Aleph. You know what? We, we're, we, we were wrong. Now, they don't yet <coughs> admit that they were wrong totally, because they say, We heard he was, he was pleading with us and we didn't listen to him. I mean, we should have had more compassion. At, that, at the least, we should have had more compassion. Where, what brought that on? And by the way, it seems like they've been, in, they've been in prison for three days and no one has said anything like this. What brought about the change? Yosef brought about the change. He says, maybe I made a mistake. And the brothers, do you know what? Maybe we made a mistake. We don't know whether they're consciously imitating him or unconsciously have absorbed that this might be appropriate to consider that they made a mistake. And what's fascinating is if you look at the, at the final words of Pasuk Kaf, because Yosef says, all of you go home, bring your brother, your words will be verified. And the Pasuk says, Vaya'asukain. You see that at the end of Pasuk Kaf. And they did so. What did they do? They didn't do anything. They haven't gone anywhere yet. What is the meaning of the words Vayasu Kain? They're literally doing nothing. <coughs> Says of Shimon Schwab, a big chiddush. You know what Vayasu Kain means at the end of Kaf? Yosef has said, I think I may have made a mistake in my judgment. And you know what the brothers did? 
they proceeded to do likewise. Vayasu Kane. And then the next Pasuk they say, maybe we were too hasty in our judgment. It's an amazing understanding of Vayasu Kane. Because if we understand that Vayasu Kane means, and they did thus, meaning what? Went up, went up to, to, to Canaan and brought Binyamin back? None of that's happened yet. They haven't done anything. Vayasu Kane. They took Yosef's example and likewise applied it to themselves. So this is the second stage. Again, stage one, to be on the, ro- <clears throat> on the other side of accusation, of a wrongful accusation. Number two, to hear someone on a much higher position of authority than they are be prepared to admit that he made a mistake. <clears throat> but it's still not safe as far as Yosef is concerned. One final thing needs to happen. And that is bringing down Binyamin. And the question is why? What does Binyamin's uh, presence here add? But what it adds is as, as follows. So far, again, we're, we're, we're summarizing, but important to, be, to maintain as clear as we can be on this trail. The brothers have been wrongly accused. Yosef has even been prepared to reconsider. One final thing needs to happen. And what does happen? The brothers wrongly accuse again. That is what happens with the whole episode of the cup with Binyamin. In other words, <coughs> when, uh, in order for Yosef to fully allow the brothers to recognize that maybe they were wrong in their accusation, he actually brings them face to face with a wrongful accusation that they cannot excuse, that they cannot deny. And that is to accuse Binyamin. It's very interesting that um, when, the, when the cup is found in Binyamin's sack, no one suspects that it's Yosef who did it, which is interesting because as far as they're concerned, he's capable of anything. They immediately say to Binyamin, how, oh, oh he's, getting us, he's getting us into trouble. How are we going to get him out of it? And perhaps that <coughs> part of the reason why is because Yosef has lulled them into a state of security with him. By doing what? By feasting with them when they return with Binyamin. There's quite a few psukim of description that he encourages them and he welcomes them and he eats with them and he drinks with them. Why is he doing that? He isn't finished with them. Why is he doing that? In order to completely give them the sense that Everything is fine with the Egyptian ruler. We've done what he needed. He's our friend. Why is that so important? So that when the cup turns up in Binyamin's sack, no one traces it back to Yosef, who's their friend by now. They immediately proceed to to accuse Binyamin. But why is that so important? Because now, finally, when Yosef says, I'm Yosef, which explains everything, and it also explains the presence of the cup in Binyamin's sack. It means the brothers are now in the presence of two brothers. One of them who they wrongly accused all those years ago and the other who they wrongly accused just this morning. And the presence of one is a controlling presence to to fully bring about the realization. In other words, the experience of, of having... It's so clear to them that, they, that as much as they accuse Binyamin of stealing, but, but that was wrong because he clearly is, is not that way, that gives context for Yosef finally. And I think what's very interesting is, in this respect, what the Pasuk doesn't say, the, what the Pasuk doesn't really speak about is, did Binyamin know that the brothers had, told, had sold Yosef? It's the, this, the simple understanding is that he did not know, which means <coughs> they kept it from Yaakov and they kept it from Binyamin. Because if Binyamin knew, why would he not tell Yaakov? He's not bound by, by, by anyone, which is fascinating. Because if that's true, im kainim hadvarim, if that's true, then the first time Binyamin found out about the whole sale was when Yosef reveals his identity to the brothers in Egypt. And that's very interesting because we normally consider this to be a great surprise for the brothers. It's Yosef. But it was a significantly greater surprise for Binyamin because 
he discovered at this stage not only that Yosef was still alive, but that the brothers had sold him. In other words, if you can just con- consider when Yosef says, I'm Yosef, and you sold him, it's Ryan, and the, the brothers are, 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 are saying, what? And Binyamin is, is, is looking at everyone and saying, what? But that's a, with a capital W and two exclamation marks, because there's a, there's a whole now decades of history and that makes it very difficult for the brothers, certainly now, cannot act with indignation or with righteousness in, in any way. Because, <coughs> And moreover, I wonder, again, one has to say these things carefully, but they're certainly worth pondering. The, the, the shame, shall we say, against the, uh, or the, the, the state of, of uh, disconcertion that the brothers had in the face of Yosef, may have been equaled, if not outweighed, by the, by the, 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 the way that Binyamin was looking at them. Because, because now they've been hiding this from him all, all these years, etc. One thing is for sure, the threat of the brothers to all of these processes has been neutralized. And, and Yosef is able to very carefully say to them, he's Yosef. And, and he begins by the shocking revelation that it's him, but he's able then move to move relatively uh, quickly into consoling them. Uh, and maybe consoling them <coughs> is also part of, <laughs> of controlling them. That is to say, of, of neutralizing them. That uh, if he says it all worked out for the good, then th- there's nothing that they need to really finish because it actually ended up with, with a good outcome. So these, uh, I think, are some fascinating perspectives on the events of Parshas Vayigash, which really are so much rooted in, in, in Yosef's behavior with the brothers in Parshas Mikes, which is itself rooted in the brothers' response to Yosef in Parshas Vayeshev, to see how there's a progression of what Yosef needs to do before he's finally able to say, Ani Yosef. Well, having... Uh, <coughs> devoted quite some attention to the beginning of the Parsha, uh, I would like actually to to focus on on a few words, which will then lead into to how the parsha progresses, and that is in Perik Memhe Pasuk Yudbeis. If we take a look, Perik Memhe Pasuk Yudbeis. Okay, so Pasuk Yudbeis reads, "Vihine enichem roos." Your eyes see ve'enechi binyamin, and the eyes of my brother binyamin see kifi hamedaber alechem. That that it's me. That it's me speaking to you. And uh, the question is, what do those words mean? That it's me speaking to you. There is a well-known comment of Rashi. It's from it's from the Medrash. That what Yosef means to say is that I'm speaking to you in Lashon Hakodesh, right? And in fact, even Unclus, well. Unclus uh, at least translates the words, I'm speaking to you in your language. That's Unclus's translation of the words, Kifi hamedaber alechem. Literally, it means, it's my mouth speaking to you. Practically, says Unclus, I'm speaking to you in your language. And Yosef elaborates, uh, pardon me, and Rashi elaborates that it means I'm speaking to you in Loshan HaKodesh. And what's the point? Why is Yosef uh, telling them this and uh, you know, making a point of saying, that uh, you can see, I'm speaking Lashen HaKodesh. So uh, the simple understanding, which uh, numerous Mephoshim take, is that this is yet Yosef um, authenticating his, his identity. It's yet Yosef saying that it's really me. Because from a certain point of view, <coughs> as we mentioned in previous years, when it really came to this crucial moment of revelation where he's Yosef, the brothers were not entirely sure to believe him that he was Yosef, because the alternative is he's just this crazed Egyptian ruler who likes tormenting them. And maybe he met Yosef, and, and this is just another round in his game where he says that he's Yosef, just to, just to make them their lives even more miserable. So it's amazing that, that, that the brothers actually, Yosef in, had to follow through and actually verify that it was him. The brothers don't say anything until they're absolutely sure because they don't want to fall for another, another round of, of misery. It's very interesting. That's how wound up the, the brothers are, so to speak. 
And that for Yosef, uh, uh, I'm speaking to you in your language, <coughs> as if to say, it's really me. The, the Meshachachma has something to say here. And the background to his statement, I think, is a very important parshanut observation. If we see from the beginning of Perik Memhei, which is really for when Yosef says, you know, I'm Yosef, it's possible to group Yosef's words to the brothers in three categories, to divide them into the psukim into three groups. And we could call the first group revelation. We'll name them and then we'll see the contents. The first group revelation, the second consolation, and the third group preparation. What does that mean? It means that the opening verses is when he says, I'm Yosef. And that's going to be until you know, the first four verses. I'm the Yosef, I'm the one you sold to Mitzrayim. That's the, the revelation. Now, now verse 5 until 8, right? Pasuk Heiteches, one could say, is consolation. In other words, it's really him. And, and, and now he's making the brothers feel better. You meant it for the bad, but Hashem worked it out for the best. Don't feel bad. Don't be upset. So we've moved from revelation to consolation. But in Pasuk Tes, we already begin the third group of Pesukim, which is preparation. Maharuva alu alavi. Go up, tell my father, uh, and, and tell him to come down, and I'll take care of him. So in other words, already we're going, looking towards the future. So why is this grouping of these three sets of psukim so significant? Because the pasuk which has him speaking Lashna Kodesh is pasuk Yud Beis. That's in the third group of psukim. That's in the psukim of preparation. If the goal of him speaking Lashna Kodesh is in order to verify that it's him, it should have been in the first group where he's yet saying who he is. <clears throat> because after verse 4, he's already moved on to consoling the brothers and preparing. Why now go back? We're already talking about plans for the future for Yaakov. And, and, and what room is there to say, oh, and by the way, it's really me. I mean, I mean, you need to say that from the outset, which is a, it's an interesting question. <coughs> this is the real Jewish geography. That is to say, to take note of where in the Parsha a Pasuk is to be found. And that's why Meshachachma explains. He doesn't, he doesn't mention any of the things that, that, that we have just said, but I think it really is the setting for the comment. And, and I, perhaps uh, this was part of the reason why he makes this comment. Everyone is reconciled. It's, it's all a bit sudden, but everyone realizes that uh, you know, it's Yosef. And the future of, of Yosef's family, until further notice, is going to be in Egypt. And which means Yaakov also needs to come down. However, there's something that, which is very significant that will, that will want to stop Yaakov or will make Yaakov not want to come down to, to, to Mitzrayim. When Yaakov hears the news <coughs> that Yosef is alive, Pasuk Kavzayim says, Vatechi ruach Yaakov avihem. Yaakov's spirit was alive. Rashi says he received ruach HaKodesh back. All these years he, didn't, he was missing out on that special connection on his level, but on that special connection with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, what's called Ruach HaKodesh, because he was in a state of mourning, uh, and therefore that connection was, was uh, lost. And now he gets it back. And for someone like Yaakov to live, in, to live with Ruach HaKodesh, that's life in the full sense of the word. And now you're telling him to go down to Egypt. But as we know, <coughs> Ruach HaKodesh and Nevoah and all of that does not exist in Chutzla Aretz. And certainly, one would imagine, not in a place like Egypt, not in a place like Mitzrayim, which is called Erbas Haaretz. And this will therefore be an impediment. Yaakov may simply say no. After everything that I've, I've reclaimed, uh, I may go to see, Yaakov, uh, to, to see Yosef, or he can come here if he can, or something like that, but I'm not going there to live. But it's clear to Yosef that that's what needs to happen. And yet, we know that this idea that there is no Ruach HaKodesh in Chutzlaretz, there's no Nevu in Chutzlaretz, it's not so clear-cut. The Gemara says in Maseches Moed Koton, Daf Kaf Hei, with reference to Yechezkel, that he had Nevuah, and he was in Bavel. Right? The Nevuahs of Yechezkel are in Bavel. <coughs> but he's one of the Nevi'im. 
How could that be? Because as the Gemara here originally had Nevuah in Eretz Yisrael, it was able to continue in Chutz La'aretz. When we say there's no Nevuah in Chutz La'aretz, that means it can never be initiated in Chutz La'aretz. But if a person has experienced Nevuah in Eretz Yisrael, it, can, it could continue, having established that connection, it can, it can, it can continue in Chutz La'aretz. And that's why the, the opening pasuk, or the opening section of Yechezkel says, Hayo haya devar Hashem al Yechezkel ben Buzi. Hayo haya. It's like two hayas. The reason why it was now is because it had already been earlier on while Yechezkel was yet in Eretz Yisrael. And Yosef is saying to Yaakov, having reclaimed Ruach HaKodesh in Eretz Yisrael, you can keep it. You can keep it in Mitzrayim. And how does he verify that? How does he further consolidate that point? He says to the brothers, look at me. I'm speaking Lashon HaKodesh. Says Meshachachma, <coughs> speaking Lashna Kodesh is not the same as speaking Hebrew. We know that uh, Yosef, in his famous meeting with Paro, and you had all those stairs, the Gemara Masech Sota, every language you know, you go up a stair, and he's 70 for 70. He knows all the languages. The Malach Gavriel gave him a crash course in all 70 languages the night before he left uh, jail. And then he's standing level with power, and he starts to speak to him in, in Lashon HaKodesh. And, pa- and power, power doesn't know what's happening. And it turns out that Yosef knows a language that power doesn't know. It's a very embarrassing for power. So power does the honorable thing and makes Yosef swear that he'll never tell anyone that he knows a language that power doesn't know. So the Mepharshim asks a simple shayla. <coughs> Why make yourself beholden to Yosef? That he, that he swears he'll never tell anyone. Why, why leave him something with something over you? Why not ask him to teach you Lashon HaKodesh? I mean, as far as Yosef is concerned, you're about to retire anyway. <laughs> so, so take an open. But we see that it's clear to, to Paro, Lashon HaKodesh in the full sense of the word, it's something that cannot be learned. You need Kedusha. In order to speak Lashon HaKodesh, a person, and by Lashon HaKodesh we mean to use words in the way that the Torah uses them, to use words in the way that the Nevi'im use them. That's Lashon HaKodesh in the full sense of the word. Para knows he never has a chance at, at using words in that way because he doesn't have the Kedusha that can, that can sustain it. <coughs> this is the proof that Yaakov, that, 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 for, that Yosef wants to. He's not, he's not, the fact that he speaks Lashon HaKodesh, it's not to prove to the brothers that it's him. It's for the brothers to prove to Yaakov that Yosef has been there all these years and he's still speaking Lashon HaKodesh. He has maintained his Kedusha integrity that he is still able to speak in the way the Torah speaks. And what Yosef is saying to Yaakov, that's why it's part of his message to Yaakov to come down to Mitzrayim. I know you're hesitant, but I did it. And if I can do it, of course you can do it. And that, is, that gives us a new insight into what it means to speak Lashon HaKodesh. Of course, it uses Hebrew words, but it's a way of using them that requires more than language skills. It requires Kedusha. And, and it's very interesting, and just with this will conclude, but uh, there is a Sifrei <coughs> which says that if a person lives in Eretz Yisrael and speaks Lashon HaKodesh, they're a Ben Olam Haba. So I remember seeing that Sifrei, of course, uh, you know, I was already living in Israel, my Hebrew was reasonable, and I thought, this, you know, I, this is very acceptable to me. Uh, it, it's, it's pretty easy. Uh, you know, ready here, and uh, you know, just a bit brush up your Hebrew and you should be good to go. <coughs> Until I saw a letter that the Orsamer wrote, Orsamer, that is to say, the Meshachachmer of Meir Simcha of Devinsk, and he wrote this in response to the question that was put to him, as was put to many of the leading Gedolim of the time, what are his views? What are his views about the return to, to Zion? What are his views about these new Yishuvim and the land of Israel? Should it be encouraged, etc.? It was, it was the issue of the day, it was, and it was beginning in those times, early 1900s. And he has a long letter, it's a famous letter, it's full of, uh, full of wisdom, not surprising, it's the Meshachachma. But in the course of his, his letter, he says, but you should know, living in the land of Israel is not a small matter. Halotir eh, consider, says Meshachachma, the Sifrei says, if you, if you live in Israel and you speak Lashon HaKodesh, you're a Ben Olam Haba. And that's when I realized that the Meshachachma understands that speaking Lashon HaKodesh 
It's a challenge that you need to rise to. It's a statement of the level upon which you're living in the land of Israel. It's not about learning a language. It's about maintaining a certain level. <coughs> and Meshachachma used this as a way to express that there's more to the return to Tzion than just coming back. It's got to be there, there are ideas and levels that, that one needs to aspire to and to attain. So this, I think, should certainly uh, give us renewed or an enhanced appreciation, which we already have, uh, of what we mean when we talk about Loshana Kodesh. And again, classic comment of Meshachachma reminding us the importance not only of paying attention to what is being said, but where it's being said. A message in Pasuk Yud Beis is not the same as a, as a message in Pasuk Gimel. And, and its context should give you its, give you its background, and that should give you uh, more direction as to what exactly Yosef was coming to say. We'll leave it over here for this evening. I wish you all a good evening. And... A wonderful week ahead. All the very best.